Well, guys, I'm going to get out of the way of the screen tonight uh, because I'm just jacked right now. Um, that I was going to say juiced, but that's probably not the right uh, terminology. But I, I feel just crazy right now. Uh, this has been an amazing week uh, so far, and it's only Tuesday, so that's saying a lot. Um, and I had a meeting this morning uh, at 8, and that meeting ended up canceling. Um, and so I normally start finalizing my message for you guys around like 10.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. So I started at 8 this morning, uh, which, was, which was awesome, because I got it just like, I like slammed it out. And then I was like, wait a minute, I have all this extra time. I'm going to make slides for you guys. So I have slides tonight, which is, which is great for all your note-taking and uh, all the note-takers out there. But we, uh, we just wrapped up a two-week, um, two-part sermon on doctrine and what Jesus uh, said about himself in John chapter 8. Um, and I know last week what I talked about before we went into the Q&A part uh, probably went over a lot of heads. Um, and I'm sorry, uh, I probably should have talked about that not on a Tuesday night, maybe more on like a, like a Bible study that would take place over a few weeks, um, because that was a lot of information. Uh, and I just want to reassure you guys, none of that's actually like theological, that's, that's just an interpretation of something. Um, and so uh, take it or leave it, I'm chill either way. I know it excited me, but I know that it went over a lot of people's heads, which that's totally okay. I'm not expecting you to retain it, um, which is totally awesome. I think in our Q&A time, we actually got a lot more done than me explaining some uh, obscure uh, things. <laughs> but with that being said, I'm really excited about getting this back to Scripture because uh, I love Scripture, and I'm ready just to uh, expound and tear apart John chapter 9. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, let me see your Bibles. Hold them up in the error. Uh, Aaron just got a new Bible today. He's really excited about it. Uh, everyone look at Aaron's new Bible. I want us all to be extremely silent real quick, and because I, I want the recording to pick this up. Aaron, can you just like open the pages of a new Bible? They got like that staticky sound. You guys hear it? Like that? Yeah, I love new Bible pages. That's awesome. I know our thing didn't pick that up. That's totally chill. Uh, John chapter 9. Um, but before we go to John chapter 9, I just want to uh, remind us, uh, our sermon series is I Saw the Light, the Gospel According to John. Uh, and the purpose of the Gospel of John, the purpose of the study, can be found in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. And John, that's the next slide, if you don't mind hitting it. Uh, no, that is not, you skipped over a few. Um, go back. Man who skippeth slides. Uh, there we go. Uh, this is what it says in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. Uh, this is the theme of the book. This is the purpose of John's gospel. It says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. One more time it says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is Messiah, that he is the anointed one, the appointed one. Go back real quick. And uh, that he is the son of God and that believing you may have life in 
his name. So the, the whole purpose of this sermon series, I Saw the Light, the Gospel According to John, uh, our purpose as we go through this, we've been in it now, this is week 24, um, and we've been 24 weeks tearing apart the Gospel of John. The purpose of these 24 weeks and the next 24 after this, as we're looking through the Gospel of John, uh, our purpose is to see the light and to see that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that through him and only through him we can have life and life to the fullest. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now we're going to jump to a portion of Scripture um, that is actually extremely awesome. Uh, It's John chapter 9. And before we get there, um, remembering that Christ is the light of the world, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, uh, and that it is through him that we can have life, we need to remember that we have to trust in him as our only Savior. He is the only thing that can save us. It's not um, a program, it's not a church, it's not even a Christian friend. Those things cannot save you. It is only Jesus Christ who saves us. We all track in there? That's awesome. Now, Jesus is going to do something here in chapter 9. Something changes in the Gospel of John. Um, We've been going through for the last 23 weeks, uh, but something's going to change. We're at a tipping point in the book of John. Uh, Something very intense takes place in chapter 9. And what this is, is there is a distinct shift in Jesus' ministry. Up until this point, we've seen Jesus preaching to the multitudes, preaching to the crowds. Uh, But here, something takes place in verse 2. And it says this, And his disciples asked him. Uh, This is the very first time we see that word disciple in the Gospel of John referring to Jesus' tight-knit circle of followers. Okay? Jesus' ministry at this point in the Gospel of John is going to shift from focusing on the crowds and the multitudes to focusing inward at his disciples. Because Jesus realizes that in just a few short months he's going to be dying on a cross. So what he does now is he's going to put his attention on his disciples, get all the last things he can say out before his death. And because at this point in time, um, the people, the Jews, the Pharisees, they've all begun to reject Jesus think, who is this crazy lunatic? This guy's crazy. Uh, So he's now shifting his focus from them uh, to his disciples. Um, So now we're going to do, and you guys can have the slides up on the screen so you can read along with me. I'm reading from the New King James, uh, but we're going to be reading John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. So this is what it says. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, 
Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. <coughs> Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Dear God, tonight, I just pray in these next few moments as we look at your perfect word, uh, God, your perfect law of liberty, God, that you would speak to us through your word. God, that that phrase that that man said, I do not know where he is. Uh, God, we'll see later on in the story that, 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 that they reconnect up. But God, that's not, that's not where we're at. We don't say, I don't know where he is. God, we thank you that you've taken up residence inside of us. If we put our faith in you, you by your Holy Spirit have come and take up residence inside of us, uh, God, so we know where you are. God, and we thank you that you're with us. And as we read your word, that you by your Holy Spirit reveal truth to us through your word. God, we just pray that tonight your word would reveal truth to us. God, that your word would inspire us and encourage us. God, that your word would challenge us to be more like Christ. God, I pray that tonight none of these would be my words, uh, but God, only your perfect word would come through. Anything that would be of me may have fallen deaf ears or may not even be able to get it out of my mouth, but God, we want your perfect word to come through tonight. God, we pray that where we may be blind, God, you would, in the supernatural, spit in the dirt, mix it up, make clay. God, remove the blindness from our eyes so that we can see you clearly. God, because you are the light of the world. And we want to see that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God, and that in you is life. So God, we thank you. We praise you in your such wonderful and beautiful name. Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Verse 1 through 5, uh, we see that Jesus sees a blind man. Uh, but not just any blind man, not a man who was blind, uh, but had one day seen and maybe poked his eye. Um, how many of you guys have ever poked your eye before? Anyone ever poked their eye? Uh, I've poked my eye multiple times. Um, I have really good vision. I'm not bragging. Um, since the time I was like 8, I've had 20-10 vision. Uh, I, doctors have said you'll probably never need glasses. Um, I used to be able to read things from legitimately like a football field away. Like I had like Superman vision. A few years ago, I was playing hide and go seek. You're never too old for it. And I was playing outside and it was dark and I didn't pay attention. And I turned and I caught a branch right to my eye. And I scratched my cornea. Uh, and it was very painful. Anyone ever scratched their cornea before? Has anyone scratched a cornea? Raise your hand. I want to know if you scratched a cornea. Okay, I've got you all topped. I've scratched the same cornea three times. Um, so, I never learned. Um, so I had to wear an eye patch for like two weeks. The very next year, the same occasion, the same tree, I poked my eye and scratched my cornea again. I was in the emergency room, Thanksgiving night, really not happy about it. And uh, you were there. Yeah, and uh, not, not a fun situation. And then, a year ago, I'm out having fun with, with Aaron and Sam and John throwing frisbees, because that's what we do, and Wesley was, was there also, and uh, my frisbee was on the ground, so I bent down to pick up my frisbee, but you know there's like, every once in a while there's that like one twig that's sticking up that you just can't see it, because like it's invisible when you look down, but from the side you can see it, but it's invisible when you look down, well with a full head of steam, literally, 
I went right down to pick up my nail, and this branch right up into my eye. This time it didn't just scratch my cornea, it tore my cornea, and the, and the, and the scratch was, was over a centimeter long, it took up most of my eye, um, it had pushed my eyes so far back into the socket that I bruised my optic nerve, and I bruised the actual tissue of my eye, uh, it will actually never heal up fully, um, I lost all vision in that eye, the doctor didn't know if I would actually be able to get vision better than legally blind in my right eye, which I was really bummed out about because I, I got 20-10 vision, you know. Um, so this then started a process, a, a three-week process of every three days going to the eye doctor for like three hours. It sucked, and they put you in these weird machines that like stretch your eye open, and they put like weird liquid in there that turns your eye like blue, and then they shine a light at it so I can see everything. I had to get what is the equivalent of stitches on my cornea, which is this like liquid glue that was crazy. And then to make it even better, they're like, well, it's going to get exposed to light, so let's put a Band-Aid on it. And so they put a contact Band-Aid, and then I had to wear this nasty thing on there that I took off right when I got home because it was annoying. All that being said, our vision is very, very important. I think there's a reason why it says in the Bible that where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. I lost vision in one eye and I freaked out. It was not very comfortable. Well, that being said, <coughs> even uh, God's good, okay? I gained full vision back uh, and I have about 2018 vision. It's not quite 2010 anymore, but it's still better than 2020. So praise God for that. But uh, to this day, if I sleep on my right side uh, and, and have my eye on the pillow, uh, that's enough pressure to re-engage the bruised and like the beat up blood vessels in the back of my eye and I'll wake up and I can't see out of that eye and it hurts really really bad and so it, it just like takes me like going like this and like putting water in it you know to like wake it up but so that's not fun I was I was with a second grader today and it's crazy hat day and he had a crazy hat and his crazy hat poked me in the eye I was like dang it and so I'm just like walking around like this like hanging out with the second graders and, and, and he tells one of the teachers he's like I poked him in the eye the teacher's like he's crying and I like, I, I like literally, I was, I had like all these tears. It was, it was just bad guys. And so I can't even imagine what it would be like to be blind after seeing things. But this man was blind from the time he was born. He was born uh, blind. And, and, and Jesus sees this man. Um, and Jesus has gone around and he's healed a lot of people, you know, and his disciples have been with him and they've seen him do this thing. And so it surprises me when the disciples ask Jesus, rather than, oh, Master, let's have pity on this man. Can you heal him? They look at him and they're like, hey, Jesus, uh, did this man sin or did his parents <clears throat> sin that he would be left with such an iniquity? Um, and Jesus does something uh, impressive here. What he does is we all know Jesus likes to flip things around, right? We say one thing and Jesus is like, well, what about this? Jesus does the whole flipperoo, the Jesus juke right here. Um, and, and he goes from the cause, and he says, uh, it's not the cause uh, that comes into play here. That's not what matters. Uh, but it's the divine purpose that's at play. You see, because they very easily could have just written it off as sin, because we're all sinners, fall short of the glory of God. And as a result, we have infirmities. Um, we're not perfect. But Jesus said, no, this man was not blind because of sin. He was blind so that the glory of God could be made known. 
his blindness had a purpose. So what happens next um, is a little bit reminiscent of a, of a toast, not a piece of toast from bread, but a toast, like cheers to you. Uh, Jesus does something, and the toast I'm referring to uh, is a toast that probably none of us have ever heard before. Maybe you have, but there's a toast where everyone's gathered in the room, they're all fancy and whatnot, they lift up their glasses and they say, well, here's mud in your face. Anyone ever heard that before? Here's some mud in your face. Okay. Yeah, none of us have probably ever heard it before because none of us are horse racers or horse jockeys. But this is what horse racers say when they win. They give the toast, here's some mud in your face. In essence, saying, uh, well, I'm glad you were eating my dust as we were going along. Well, Jesus is going to do something here, and he's going to throw some mud in this guy's face. Uh, so we see in verse 6 and 7 that he said these things, and he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went, uh, and he came back, uh, and he was seeing. Something uh, something crazy takes place here. Uh, Jesus anoints this man uh, with some mud and with some clay uh, that he made out of spit. And uh, the man is healed. Now, at looking at this portion of Scripture, I was, I was encouraged to look at uh, what the early church fathers had to say uh, about this portion of Scripture, because I think some of the best commentators uh, are those who live within 100, 200 years of those who actually did the writing of Scripture. So there's this guy, many of you have probably heard of him, uh, but his name is Ambrose, and, and he's a, uh, a man in the Catholic tradition uh, who is a saint. Uh, he's one of our Christian ancestors. Uh, he's a really good man. Uh, and this is what he says. I think this is really cool. What is the meaning of the Lord's action in this? Surely one of great significance, since the person whom Jesus touches receives more than just his sight. In one instance, we see both the power of his divinity and the strength of his holiness. As the divine light, he touches this man and he enlightens him. As priests, by the action and symbolizing uh, in baptism, we also uh, do the work of redemption. The only reason for his mixing the clay with saliva and smearing it on the eyes of the blind man is to remind you that the very man he restored to health by anointing his eyes with clay is the very one who fashioned the first man out of clay. And that this clay, that is our flesh, can receive light and the eternal life through baptism. So... Some interesting correlations being made to the clay uh, that Jesus makes with his spit and the dust and the clay that Adam was formed out of and how we too serve a God who can heal with the same things he created. Right? I thought that was really cool. And we're going to come back to the church fathers in just a little bit. But here's the deal. Sickness, disease, deformity, and death, uh, they have all dominated. All those things have dominated this world ever since uh, the fall, ever since Adam. In essence, ever since uh, the history of Earth, sickness, uh, deformity, disease, death—they've uh, really plagued humanity since the history of the world. And here's the thing: our bodies are corrupt uh, as a result of sin. Our bodies are corrupt uh, as a result of the fall. Does that mean people are punished with sickness? That people are punished with deformities? That people are punished with disease? No, that is not the case. It's a result of our uh, fallen being. It's not punishment. It's just 
how we are and who we are. It's in our DNA. Uh, so, so some people like to say, uh, some really ignorant and belligerent bigot Christians like to say, well, that person has cancer because they did that. Uh, no, okay? Uh, the reason any of us even get the common cold is because the way our body systems work um, is greatly affected and corrupted by the fall in the garden. So, um, yes, I guess as a result, they got cancer because of sin, but not because of a specific sin that they committed. It's just because sin in general has affected our bodies. Does that make sense? Okay. And, 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 and so rather than pointing out, oh, that person sinned, so that's how they were punished. No, we are all sinners by nature, and sickness, deformity, disease, and death is just a byproduct of our natural state of being since the fall. And so uh, I want us to look real quick, before we take a look at uh, all the actions that take place during uh, what Jesus does here with this man, uh, and I want us to look back at the Old Testament because there's something very intriguing to me as I was studying Jesus and his healing. And like Ben, you're actually doing a paper on healing right now, so make sure to take notes on this part because this is going to be good. Okay. In the Old Testament, we see divine healing take place only three times. Now, to me... I was extremely surprised by that. And the reason why is because when we read the Bible, we read about healing all the time. Um, but in the Old Testament, there's only three times where God intervenes. Uh, and uh, three uh, does the effects of sin in this uh, infirmity or disease or sickness, and he makes them new. The first uh, being those Israelites who were in the desert with Moses and uh, these venomous snakes came up and began biting people and they were getting infected by the poison and they were dying uh, and God provided a way that they could be miraculously healed. It's a great story. Go read it. Um, the next time we see um, the... What's that? Uh, it's in the book of Numbers. So, 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 so go read it. It's some great stuff. Um, then we see uh, a terrorist who was attacking the Jews uh, a guy by the name of Naaman who had leprosy and uh, he ends up getting baptized and he loses his leprosy and he gets healed. Very cool, okay? Divine healing. Then we know the guy uh, who was king of Israel, Hezekiah. Uh, he had a terminal illness uh, and he prayed and he said, God, take this away and God took it away. So God miraculously heals three times in the Old Testament, which is the majority of the Bible. God does healing three times. Then if we want to look at when he raises someone from the dead, that's probably a healing. Would we all agree that being raised from the dead is being healed? Okay, yeah, it's a pretty important miracle and a pretty impressive one at that. Uh, and we see three resurrections take place in the Old Testament. One would be uh, the widow uh, who Elijah, uh, the widow's son who Elijah raises from the dead. Then there's another widow uh, who is the Shunammite widow, and her son is raised from the dead as well. And then Elijah, after he dies and is buried, his bones are in a cave, and they throw a dead man in the cave, and the dead man's uh, body lands on Elijah's bones, and he is healed and comes back to life. Um, so we see three resurrections in the Old Testament. But in five sixths of the of this book, these holy scriptures, in five six of this book, we only see in the Old Testament six times where someone is healed from a physical infirmity, whether it's death or something else. And that was really, really intriguing to me 
as I look at it, um, and then before Jesus comes onto the scene, uh, there's two more people, uh, Elizabeth, the New Testament, Jesus' aunt, she was barren, and a miracle takes place, and she's able to have children, that's a healing, uh, and then really not a healing, but a miracle nonetheless of a physical nature, Mary, uh, not having relations with any man, uh, but yet becoming in, being impregnated uh, and giving birth to a child. That's a miracle in and of itself. Uh, so before Jesus, we really see only these eight instances where God uh, intervenes and does some sort of supernatural healing in the body. And here's the thing that's crazy about it. The Old Testament is where God was most active with his people. Uh, so why then is there this explosion when Jesus shows up on the scene? If you were to read Matthew 12, uh, verse 15, we know that it's an explosion because it talks about how Jesus was going everywhere. And as he went, he healed the multitudes. We're told elsewhere in the book of John that there were so many miracles that Jesus did, there's not enough pages of paper in the earth to contain it all. Whether that's just a uh, hyperbole or a reality, um, Jesus did many miracles that we don't even have written down in the gospel. But here's the thing. Uh, Jesus, uh, he started doing his miracles during his ministry at the age of 30. And we know this because it says in the book of John that when he went to Cana and he did the miracle there at the wedding, uh, that this was Jesus' first miracle. So any Gnostic gospel or anything where people <coughs> say Jesus did miracles when he was a kid, you know, uh, that's hogwash. Okay, Jesus' miracles were during this three-year period. And in this three-year period, we see more miracles than the history of humanity had ever seen when Jesus shows up on the scene. So why is there this explosion of miracles when Jesus shows up on the scene? Well, let us remember that John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, tells us that these things were written down that we may know Jesus is the Christ. Well, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, you can write that down and go look it up on your own, while he's giving this sermon to all the people of Jerusalem at, on the day of Pentecost, he says to the crowd that, this is Acts 2, verse 22, uh, that God is attesting through Jesus, in, and, and the, the, the miracles that Jesus is doing, God is attesting that Jesus is Messiah. God, through Jesus' miracles, God is showing that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. It is this explosion of miracles that proves the divinity of Jesus. Now, some would say, well, there's people who did miracles who weren't Jesus, you know, like those Egyptian priests who did crazy things, and they just copied the plagues of Moses. Okay, yeah, there were magicians and, and, and all that stuff. That's, that's cool. Demonic activity is not <laughs> that cool. But uh, Jesus, uh, the amount of miracles that Jesus did and the manner in which he did them uh, far surpasses anything that had ever taken place and proves his divinity. He actually fulfills a prophecy that's in the book of Isaiah that talks about how Messiah will come, that God will come and will perform many miracles and heal many, many people. So the explosion of Jesus' miracles here in the Gospel of John and in all the Gospels uh, goes on to prove his divinities. Uh, and friends, what I want us to look at tonight uh, is that sickness and illness 
Uh, I don't want us to look at those uh, as sin and results of sin, but more as an opportunity to bring glory to God. When we see sickness, when we see disease, when we see hurt in this world, rather than looking at those as a result of some sin, which it may be in some cases, what we are to look at these things are as opportunities to bring God glory. Look at them as opportunities where we can see, all right, God, you can do something here. And the temptation is that we expect that God would heal everyone 100% of the time, which I can speak from personal example, that is not the case. But God receiving glory in all things, that can be the case and is the case. So to the person who uh, has a family member who they've been praying for for years and that family member dies, um, it can be easy to say, God, where were you? But the legacy that person leaves and the amount of people that are affected as a result of that person and the faith, I mean, many, many miracles can take place even in someone's passing and going to heaven. Uh, I know... I actually just had lunch with a guy today who his grandpa was a pastor for many years and as his grandpa was getting older uh, he realized, you know, I'm probably not going to live much longer. So what he did was he set up a camera and he gave a sermon. And it was a sermon he gave his very own funeral. And he presented like, this was my life, this is how I live, it's all because of you. And he gave an altar call to this video camera and then put it away. When I die, I show this at my funeral. And so he did his own funeral, which is actually really, really cool. And people gave their hearts to Jesus as a result. I, I've been a part of many funerals where people, where people give their hearts to the Lord. But here's the thing. Even in what we see here as, well, God didn't heal them, so how can he get the glory? Uh, people give their hearts to Jesus as a result. and so, But he does heal sometimes. And healing does take place today. We are told... In the epistles that Paul writes, uh, that when someone is sick, James tells us when someone is sick, gather the elders of the church, anoint them and pray for them, and offer up a prayer of faith that they would be healed. And it happens. It literally happens. I'll give you one more example about myself, and then we're going to dive into Scripture, okay? When I was 14, 15, somewhere in there, I was about five foot six, five foot seven. And um, I went into the hospital just for a routine checkup, um, and they did some x-rays on me, and they found that I had, uh, I can't even pronounce it, sclerosis in my back. Uh, they showed me the x-ray of my spine, and my spine legitimately was doing an S. Okay? The doctor said, this is a problem, and it's pretty hard to fix, but just know you're never going to make it to five foot eight. Me... I didn't care that my back was an ass. I didn't want to be shorter than five foot eight. So I said, I want to be taller. And I don't believe that. Uh, so my intentions were great, but I said, I want to pray about this. And so I went, had the elders pray for me, and we prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. A month later, went back for a checkup, got an x-ray. The doctor comes back in, and he goes, I don't know what happened, but he compared my spines, and one was an S, and one was perfectly straight. And he said, your back's perfectly straight. I don't know what happened. That's not normal. And so I was just able to say to the doctor, I said, we prayed, Jesus healed. The doctor goes, well, you must have a God 
Who hears your prayers? Glory to God. And that stuff happens on a daily basis. So, healing um, and really sickness and infirmity, uh, those are not results of sin. Rather, they're opportunities for us to see God's glory manifest here and now. Told you I'd come back to another quote from a church father. An awesome dude by the name of Searle of Alexandria. He has this to say. <coughs> and what he does here is, is he's imagining himself as the man who was blind and now seeing. And I'm going to read you what he writes. And he's writing this in the 3rd uh, century AD. So we're talking within 200 years of this story even taking place. And this is what he says. He says, Here it is as though a man saying, I will prove to you that the power of the healer was not exerted in vain. I will not deny the favor that I have received, for I now possess what I formerly longed for. I, who was blind from birth and afflicted from the womb, having been anointed with the clay, I am healed, and I see. That is, I do not merely show you my eyes open, concealing the darkness in its depths, but I really see. From now on, I am able to look at the things that formerly I could not or, or the, the things I could only hear about. Look, the bright light of the sun is shining around me. Look, the beauty of the strange sights surround my eyes. A short time ago, I scarcely knew Jerusalem, or knew what Jerusalem was like, and now I see the temple of God glittering within it. And behold, it is in its midst the, true, uh, the truly venerated, venerable altar. And if I stood outside the gate, I could look around, at the country of Judea, and recognize one thing as a hill and another as a tree. And when the time changes to the evening, my eye will no longer fail to notice the beauty of the nighttime sky, but the brilliant company of the stars and the golden light and the moon which is in it. When I do, I shall be amazed at the skill of him who made them, and the greatness and the beauty of these created things, as I, uh, I as well as others shall acknowledge the great creator." So this is kind of a cool just looking at what this guy could have been thinking. Like, now I can see I'm going to bring glory unto God. And this reminded me of, of another um, thing, uh, another statement that was said uh, by a guy by the name of Augustine, who's another early church father. And I've actually shared this quote uh, multiple times, but I think it's really important when we're talking about blind people. And when we prayed before service, that, that, that if we be blind to certain things, that God would open our eyes so that we could see truth. This is what Augustine says about Jesus being the light of the world and revealing truth. This is what he says. But perhaps the foolish hearts cannot receive that light because they are so encumbered with the sins that they cannot see him. Let them not on that account think that the light is in any way absent because they are not able to see it. For, because of their sins, they are in darkness. For suppose, as in the case of a Bible, blind person placed in the sun. The sun is present to him, but he is absent from the sun. This, how, this is how every foolish person, every unjust person, every irreligious person is blind in their hearts. Wisdom is present, but it is present to a blind person and absent from his eyes. Not because it is absent from him, but because he is absent from it. What then is he to do? Let him become pure that he may be able to see God. In essence, what Augustine is saying here is to a person who's blind, who's placed outside on a beautiful sunny day, the sun is not, <coughs> not there, 
it's there and he can feel the warmth of the sun, but he cannot see the sun. And so too we live in a world where there are people who are blinded, not physically, but blinded spiritually. And it's not that God is not present, because he can be seen, he can be heard, he can be felt, but they don't see spiritually that he is there because they're absent from him. And so well, the, the encouragement there is that we, as people who have seen the light, we go and we share that light and we are in the process and we help out in people's eyes being opened so that they can see uh, who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Now as we continue on, if we were to read through verses 13 uh, all the way through the end, which we're not going to do tonight because we're going to do that next week, um, I have three quick points for us, and, and those points are going to be up on the screen. Um, but at this point, we're faced with three different paths, um, and these are all reactions to the healing uh, and the glory of God being made manifest, because we see different reactions here. Go back one slide, JMO. Yeah, we're going to see three radical reactions to Christ's miracle, because at this point uh, in time, uh, there are people who react to what Jesus does. Uh, the Pharisees, they go crazy. Okay, uh, and this really begins the downfall, if you can call it a downfall, but really Jesus' journey to the cross. Okay? And uh, things are now all, uh, Jesus has hit the crest of his ministry, and now he's on the downslope, as if you could call Jesus' ministry a downslope, but he's getting ever nearer to the cross. And so the first point that I want us to make um, in our three radical approaches to Jesus' miracle, uh, the first one is that there are radical skeptics. Um, this is uh, probably not uh, the place where we want to be. Okay, uh, We don't want to be uh, skeptics or skeptics. <laughs> don't know what happened. Uh, I'm not a thesaurus. Uh, no, uh, but radical skeptics. Everyone just writes skeptics. Um, who are using their spectacles to look at things with skeptic eyes, skeptic eyes. Um, so the first group of radical skeptics, <coughs> not skeptics, uh, the first group of radical um, people who were questioning uh, are those who sought to kill Jesus at this point. Those are the Pharisees, those who uh, really were offended by what Jesus did and, and, and his healing. Uh, the second are those who rejected Jesus' message. That would be the crowd at this point. The crowd has begun to reject Jesus, and they're like, you know what? You are crazy. You're messing with our ideologies and the way we think. This is intense. And those first two, those first two, I don't think any of us can really fall into that category, uh, those who want to kill Jesus. Um, we can reject Jesus' message, but if you're here tonight... Uh, you're probably not rejecting Jesus' message. You probably came back because you like Jesus' message and you want to learn more. That's just a general assumption I'm making, which you're never supposed to do, by the way. You guys know what it means to assume something, right? Yeah. Enough said. All right. So, but the third uh, is a group that we can become at times. Uh, and in Christianity as a whole today, uh, this group is very present. Okay? And this is the group who refuses to accept that healings uh, take place today. And you might think to yourself, and I don't know everyone's uh, upbringing of either church or non-church, but there are people who believe that today healings do not take place. Um, and they believe that uh, 
things just happen as a result of God's divine nature and divine will, which they do, uh, but their emphasis is that God no longer does things the way he did in the New Testament. Um, and you see here that I have in quotations the cessationist movement. That's not sensationist movement. That's cessationist movement, coming from the root word cease. Uh, they believe that uh, the operations and the giftings of the Holy Spirit ceased at the end of the apostolic age, or uh, the first century, when the last apostle died. At that point, the Holy Spirit no longer was operating in the church. Um, now, I don't know everyone's church upbringing, but to the majority of us, I think that's probably a little bit foreign. Uh, I know myself, I've grown up in a church uh, that is very much reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit and uh, charismatic when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I don't want to come down on you tonight. Uh, I just believe Scripture says uh, otherwise. But these cessationists, a believe that spiritual gifts such as healing, such as prophecy, such as words of knowledge, words of wisdom, such as tongues and speaking in tongues, uh, all those things no longer exist in the church today, uh, which sounds crazy, but they actually have verses they try and back it up with. Uh, one of those verses being found in 1 Corinthians, that uh, in chapter 13, and it says that uh, now we prophesy in part, uh, and, and we speak in tongues in part, and we do all these things in part. But when the perfect has come, we will no longer need to do these things. Um, and yes, that verse is a true verse. Uh, what they would say the perfect is, uh, is the canon of Scripture. When Scripture's uh, canon was closed, and when Revelation was written, and we said, this is our Bible, this is perfect, it's the authoritative word of God, which it is, and this is now our rule of faith and conduct, which it is, but we don't need the Holy Spirit anymore because the Holy Spirit inspired this, and it is through this that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. That's how they interpret that. Um, I would argue that the perfect that is being referred to there uh, is this awesome place that if you put your faith in Jesus, you'll go when you die, or when Jesus takes us back. Uh, I believe the, the perfect that Paul is referring to is heaven. And here's my justification for why I believe that. Do you think when we get to heaven, we're going to be walking down the streets of gold and see a man off in the corner suffering from cancer, and we go over and we say, you know what, uh, gentlemen, uh, can I pray for you that you would be healed? Do you think that's going to take place when we're in heaven, yeah. when there will be perfection? No, there's going to be zero need for healing when we get to heaven. Another one. When we speak in the tongues of men and angels, speaking in tongues, we're praying an unknown language to a God we cannot see. Okay? When we get to heaven, we're going to be able to see God. Are we going to need to speak in some language that we do not know? Probably not. I don't know. I, I, I can tell you this. I doubt we speak English in heaven. We might, though. Who knows? I, I think it'd be a little bit uh, arrogant of us to think that we speak in English in heaven. But that being said... Um, when we get to heaven, are we going to need to have words of wisdom? Like, I'm going to be walking down the streets of heaven, and I see Jonah just chilling there. I'm like, yo, Jonah, i got a word of wisdom for you. Mm -hmm. Or like, I'm walking down, and I see Peter there at the front of the gate. 
Peter, I got this prophecy for you, okay? No, we're not going to need those things when we get to heaven. So that's why I believe that the perfect that's being referred to there in 1 Corinthians 13 is heaven. And with that being said, I believe fully that the operations and the giftings uh, and the ministries of the Spirit that are found in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians uh, (coughs) chapter uh, 12 and 14 in, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, I believe those things are operating and are moving in the church today. And we, as followers of Christ, should be seeking to operate in those things. Amen? Amen. Okay, so with that being said, I love my cessationist brothers and sisters. Sometimes I think they're crazy, but they think we're crazy, which is totally chill, because a lot of times we are. And I got to give them credit, because there's this resurgence of the cessationist movement today because of a group, and it's the second group that we're going to look at tonight, which is... The radical spiritualists. And I tread this ground lightly <clears throat> because I'm Pentecostal and I'm charismatic. Uh, and I believe in divine healing. I believe in speaking in tongues. I believe all this stuff. But there are a group of Christians, ever growing in number, who take this above and beyond uh, what it is all about. So, first group of people who would do this, who are early spiritualists, were the early Gnostics. They believed in an esoteric uh, view of Christianity, that it was all spiritual. The God of the Old Testament was the evil one. And the God of the New Testament was great. He sent his spirit. We could all through the spirit. Like all this, yeah, like weird mystical stuff. And if you want to do a study on Gnosticism, it's crazy. And they were crazy. Okay? Uh, and Paul and some of the early church fathers, such as Irenaeus, they pretty much uh, tore apart the Gnostics, and the Gnostics needed to be torn apart. Uh, Gnosticism is surfacing in different pockets of Christianity today, and it's scary, and it's actually pretty uh, It's sad that we've allowed our minds to get warped where we begin to think this way again. But we're not going to get there because none of us are even involved in any Gnostic things. Gnosticism is more on the lines of like Mormonism is a form of Gnosticism. Jehovah's Witness is a form of Gnosticism. There's some crazy uh, cults within the umbrella of Christianity that are Gnostic. None of us are in result or, or in relation with them. Now, the next group of radical spiritualists uh, were the Montanists, or uh, those who followed Montanists. Uh, it was a second century group of Christians uh, who believed in what was called the New Prophecy. And it was a uh, reliance on the spontaneity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they said, you know what, the apostles' doctrine and teaching is great, but we have this new revelation, this new prophecy, and let's like just go as the Spirit leads us. Okay? Um, which I do believe it's good to go when the Spirit leads you. I'm not knocking that. But when that becomes our compass, rather than Scripture, we can begin walking down a road that is very very, 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 can I say very five more times? Very, 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 very dangerous. When we stop using Scripture as our compass and we start using the Holy Spirit as our compass. Why do I say that? Well, because the Holy Spirit uses the Bible as his compass. And so if we begin to use the Holy Spirit in a way he wouldn't use himself, 
that's a very bad place to be because the Holy Spirit that we think we're listening to is probably not the Holy Spirit. But it's demonic. And I'm being legitly honest with you. Legitly finding a word. I'm just going to be honest with you. Here's the thing. And, and these guys, um, they weren't heretics. Um, a lot of them were just good, Jesus-loving people. But it led a lot of people into heresy. And so the, the daughter organizations or religious groups that formed out of this were very much heretics. Uh, and it has trickled down into what is viewed today as hyper-Pentecostal or hyper-charismatic where there is such a reliance on the Holy Spirit um, without reliance on God's Word and without reliance on what Jesus has done. Uh, is this to say that these people are not followers of Christ? Well, they would say they are, and in many cases they are. Um, but the, the warning here, and I think um, just some good reminder, uh, is that, yes, we must rely on the Holy Spirit um, because the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. But how does the Holy Spirit reveal truth to us? Through His Word. Um, there is no new revelation. We're told in this book that there is no new revelation. So if someone ever steps up and they're like, Church, I've got a new revelation for us. We should do this. The very first thing you should do is be like, Yeah, red flag. Go check God's Word. Because in many cases, in many cases, people who say, you know, well, the Holy Spirit's leading us to do this. And then, well, the Holy Spirit's leading here. And now my sermon has had nothing to do with this, the Bible, but has had to do with current events and how the Holy Spirit is leading us to reach in and touch these people. Um, that is a very, very dangerous place to be. I'm not saying they've crossed over the line to heresy, um, but they walk a very fine line with heresy. Yes? These people, yeah, that's a good question. What's the difference between Montanists and hyper-charismatics? Uh, these people existed 1,800 years ago. These people exist in our backyard. Yeah. So they're pretty much the same group. It just kind of, the, the idea the idea of Montanism disappeared and has resurfaced in the last 100 years. Um, and they walk a very fine line here. Um, and this is the fine line they walk. And I have friends uh, who are involved in hyper-charismatic churches. Uh, many of them love Jesus. Other of them, uh, if you were to ask them about Jesus, they'd be like, yeah, the Holy Spirit, right? I'm like, no, I mean Jesus. Uh, and there's been <coughs> such a focus on the Holy Spirit, more so than even Jesus or God the Father and the Holy Spirit himself would focus on himself. There's been such a focus and a worship of the Holy Spirit in the acts of the Holy Spirit or something that has been attributed or blamed on the Holy Spirit, uh, where they begin to worship the feelings, they begin to worship the healings, they begin to worship the Holy Spirit's movement, rather than worshiping Jesus. Because here's how you know it's a true move of the Holy Spirit. Every time we see the Holy Spirit move in Scripture, He does one thing. He points back to Jesus. And if the Holy Spirit is not pointing back to Jesus, it's probably no spirit worth being called holy. Let's say that one more time. It's worth writing down. It's worth putting on your Facebook post. If the Holy Spirit is not pointing back to Jesus, it's probably not a spirit worth being called holy. 
Because here's the thing. The Holy Spirit's main operation is to bring honor and glory to Jesus. When someone is healed, it is to bring honor and glory to Jesus. When a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge is given, it is to bring honor and glory to Jesus. When someone speaks in tongues, it is to bring honor and glory to Jesus. When someone is generous, as Sam even talked about tonight in our little offering thing, that's a gift of the Spirit. Look it up in Romans chapter 12. Generosity is a gift of the Spirit. And it's to bring honor and glory to Jesus. If the Holy Spirit and the movement of the Spirit does not move you back to Jesus, it's not even a Holy Spirit worth being involved with. And I mean that very, very, very vehemently. Because I've seen too many brothers and too many sisters get pulled away because their itching ears wanted feelings. And their ears were itching, and someone was scratching them, and they said, hey, yeah, yeah, let's do this. And they walked down a path that is very, very dangerous, because then they start saying things. And you want to know what is the ultimate result of every one of these groups that's hyper-Pentecostal and hyper-charismatic? You want to know what the ultimate result of every single one of those is? It's a cult. They turn into a cult. There's some leader of this organization who got some divine knowledge, and they said, let's do this thing, and a cult gets formed. If, if you can find one uber-hyper Pentecostal charismatic group that is all about the ooh, that has not become a cult, come tell me, and I'll recant what I just said. But the thing is, you will not find them. Now, is that being said that there are every single hyper-charismatic and every single hyper-Pentecostal church is like that? No. There are those that say, you know what, we like this, but it points back to Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate authority. Those ones, I just take the word hyper off, and they're Pentecostal. They might be crazy Pentecostal, they're Pentecostal, but they're not hyper, and they're not walking a fine line. One group such as these is those who dance in the Appalachians with snakes. And we can trample on snakes and scorpions, and we will not be harmed. Speaking in tongues, doing their whole thing. Uh, the pastor of that church uh, died just a few months ago from venom from a snake bite. If that's not false prophecy, I don't know what is. Uh, so it's very dangerous to go the route of a radical spiritualist. <coughs> See where I'm getting at. There's the radical skeptics. It's a very dangerous place to be because it puts Jesus in a box. And there's the radical spiritualist who says, we don't even need Jesus, we got the Spirit. And I would present to you a third group of people, and I would pray that this is the group of people we all fall in. This is the group I know I fall in. This is the radical middle. Um, because if you allow the pendulum to swing too far out on either side, it's not good. And if we're, lo- if we're, if we're using the pendulum swing, the further you swing out, the harder your fall is going to be. So it's good to stay in the middle. Because I'm pretty sure that's where Jesus is. And the people, I didn't even put a list of people in the radical middle. I'm just going to put a description of the people in the radical middle. They're the people who say it's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. And will always be about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's through Jesus that we can have communication and relationship with the Father. It's through the Holy Spirit 
that we see the acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us and every single thing that we do in life should be to bring honor and glory unto Jesus. Our main goal in life, if you've given your heart to Jesus, your main goal in life should be to make famous the name of Jesus and in every opportunity, every situation, everything that arises, find it as an opportunity to bring glory unto God. That's what Jesus did. Sickness? I'll heal you to bring glory unto God. Infirmity? Yes. I'm going to fix it. It's going to bring glory unto God. You're struggling? I'm going to meet your need. Bring glory to God. Oh, you guys all have this thing called sin? I'm going to die for you. Bring the glory to God. Raise from the dead. Bring glory to God. And now make a way for you to bring glory to God. Both sides of the pendulum gave just like these two do. So in the middle is a very, very safe place to be, healthy place to be, and theologically correct place to be. But then it's what we do with that theology and then we put it into action. Because faith without works is dead. So we got to do something with what we believe. And let that faith that we have spur us onto the works, because it's not the works that save us. It's grace we've been saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But that faith that we have should inspire works, because we should see every opportunity as an opportunity to bring glory unto God. And when we do... We're chilling with Jesus because he said, Lo, I'm with you always. We're rocking and rolling with Jesus, and we'll see his kingdom come on earth as it is in Amen? Amen. What I'm going to do is I'm going to invite Bo back up to the guitar. And John, if you can plug those those two uh, two chords right back in. No, no, not that. Uh, the microphone cord and the guitar cord. We're having Kool-Aid, everyone. They're in, they're in one and two. They should just be plugged into one and two. One should already be plugged in. Uh, and Bo's going Bo's gonna to sing a song. And I'm going to invite you all to stand. Um, and we're going to sing. Uh, we're going to sing How Great Thou Art. Uh, because we serve a God who's great. And he deserves to be praised. So I'm going to pray. Then we're going to sing the song. We're going to declare it. And then we're going to go have fellowship. But dear God, we just thank you so much uh, for who you are and what you've done. God, we thank you that you heal. Uh, God, and we thank you that it is through your Son uh, that we can have a perfect relationship with you. God, may we not find ourselves on either side of the pendulum, but God, may we rest in the middle with you, the radical middle. So God, we thank you, and we praise your Son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.